Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and those of you who identify as neither, hello and welcome back to another fast track train into the underworld, your favorite weekly hour of sin, tales of taboo. My name is Allie Weiss. For those of you who are new here, I am a downtown New York Z-list actress, writer, and professional conversationalist obsessed with all people, experiences, careers, and ideas outside the bounds of what society considers traditionally acceptable or accessible or quote-unquote normal, I fucking hate that word, to talk about. Each week, I invite my audience and their network to share their unconventional life stories all behind the shield of complete anonymity. The result is half important investigative journalism and half dramatic daytime TV, and producing it is the absolute honor of my life. Today's episode was one of the first I ever did that was formatted with anonymous audience-sourced confessions. It was a part of my old show, Health is Health, and it was originally released September 2020. But It's just as much, if not more, of an honor to re-release this reworked version, which has combined the two previous episodes. It was such a surreal experience listening back to pre-pandemic me. Holy shit, it's it's like night and day. In moments of self-doubt, I tend to feel very stagnant and no matter what industry you're in, if you've been doing the same thing over and over again for a long time, I think it's natural to ask yourself like, what the fuck have I accomplished, (laughs) you know, and have I grown and have I progressed at all, especially when we're so overexposed to each other and constantly comparing ourselves as a result. But two years later, it's incredible to listen back and hear how much more realized of a human I am now and better of a host I am now as a result. I can hear in my voice how eager I was to be seen as a funny person and as a tough woman and how careful I was to not show too much sadness or sensitivity for fear that it would somehow like fuck up my brand There were multiple moments where I started crying at these stories and would literally say out loud, I'm sorry, guys, I shouldn't be crying. I need to be strong for you. Like what? As if me crying took away from other moments where I was cracking jokes, like I had to be one or the other. I was so insecure despite what I was trying to show publicly. And I was so wrapped up in the idea that every piece of work I produced needed to further my career as someone who bantered for a living, despite even at that time, clearly being attracted to topics and material that were overtly much darker. And even though it's like, yeah, duh, it's just social media, social media played such a central role in my life then. But the pandemic and the creation of Tales of Taboo forced me to step away from my mid-twenties hustle and evaluate what kind of stories I want to tell and where I want to derive my self-esteem for the long haul. But I mention all of this because it's really ironic that this intense internal conflict would have played out during the intro of this episode in particular, because in my original introduction, which was almost like 20 minutes, I talk about the profound effect that Paris Hilton's documentary had on my life and my subsequent decision to explore the topic of the troubled teen industry. 
So for anyone who hasn't seen it, and if you haven't seen it, you should run to turn it on this minute. This is Paris tells the story of Paris Hilton's experience at Provo Canyon, which is a reform boarding school in Utah. So after she moved from LA to New York at 15, Paris started rebelling against her super conservative family and their wealthy socialite expectations of her by skipping school and going clubbing and diving into subculture. Sound familiar? If you look at pictures of Paris up on Getty Images from the late 90s, you can see her in like full rave makeup, goth makeup, like chunky goth boots. She's dressed like such a tomboy. It's a very far cry from the aesthetic of the simple life. But eventually her parents felt so out of control of her behavior that they arranged for her to be kidnapped out of her bed in the middle of the night and taken to Provo, where she spent 11 months having no contact with the outside world, getting severely mentally and physically abused under the guise of fixing her. And she talks about how this year of trauma was the beginning of her developing the glitzy, ditzy baby girl persona that we've all come to know as her personality and how that was exacerbated by the non-consensual release of her sex tape with a much older boyfriend when she was only 19. Basically, Paris was put in multiple situations where authority figures and sources of supposed unconditional love failed and abused her as a kid, which caused trust issues and dissociation and various addictions and self-sexualization and most prominently the idea that money and fame could heal everything. I cannot overstate how immensely and intensely relatable that emotional journey is for me. So much so that I felt physically paralyzed after seeing so much of myself reflected back in the film. And it was also relatable to me because my seventh grade boyfriend, who was my first love, like we were obviously very young, but it was very like serious in its own way. He had mismanaged bipolar disorder and he got sent to a similar program by his parents when we were in high school His disappearance was a complete mystery, but we all knew that he was never the same afterwards. He would fall into these massive pits of depression or substance abuse or just disappearing from socializing entirely, which is doubly upsetting because he's one of the most talented writers and lyricists ever, but he can't get out of his own way. He just can't. And we've bonded heavily throughout our 20s about our similarities, but it wasn't until I saw this film that I actually understood why he was the way he was. And to a certain degree, it also helped me understand myself too. But this episode is not about me. It's about those of you who also lived through Paris' Paris's experience firsthand and recounted those experiences to me. So the troubled teen industry, that's actually the phrase, is an elusive corrupted for-profit network of schools and programs and rehabs and residences that are meant for like quote-unquote unstable out of control promiscuous and drug addicted young people these programs are notorious for 
kidnapping, forced medication, even straight up brainwashing. And all of them use emotionally or physically violent therapy and control tactics. Normally, I think the word trigger is really overused. But in this case, I'm issuing a trigger warning. Trigger warning. (laughs) My mouth won't even let me say it. But I am. Um, This episode is dark. And it contains sensitive material about all of the things that I just mentioned. And while I'm very happy to say that since the release of Paris' documentary and this episode originally... Some of these programs have been shut down, but many of them have not. So I hope this episode is educational and enlightening for you, but also inspires you to read up more and take action. Without further ado, this is Tales of Taboo. When I was 17, I was sent away to a residential treatment center for nine months in Spanish Fork, Utah by my parents. They sent me away for a lot of reasons, but the main reason was I had a drug overdose that was pretty bad that came at the end of a six-month-long bender, I guess, um, where I was just doing prescription pills every day, cocaine, bringing water bottles full of liquor to school. I was deep in an eating disorder, deep in depression, deeply suicidal, and then I overdosed on drugs, and it kind of changed everything. I didn't go willingly. I was woken up by transporters early in the morning while I was still tripping on drugs. And I mean, I didn't fight it because I kind of knew I was going to make an ass of myself and I wouldn't have been able to get away with it. There wasn't much that I could do. There was a male and a female transporter. And the female transporter told me, everybody left the room. She said, okay, get dressed, take a couple things with you, and then let's go. So I got dressed, I got a backpack, and I think the only two things that I put in it were Judd Apatow's book of interviews with stand-up comedians and a box of Cheez-Its, which was promptly snatched from me right when I got there. I was driven in a car to a private airport where we got on a private plane that my parents had chartered, presumably because I don't think they wanted to take me through a public airport, just you know, at the risk of me causing a scene. The way that the campus was set up was um, there were three houses on this large plot of land in the middle of nowhere in Utah. We were just surrounded by farms. Each house had about 16 girls each, and then there were three therapists per house. So you would be living with three or four girls that shared the same therapist as you. And I mean, we each had, it was two girls per a 10 by 10 room, and you'd sleep on these skinny little cots and um, be checked in on every single night. We also had a pretty extensive ropes course for recreational therapy, which is like physical therapy, kind of, but not for an injury, but physical in the aspect of trust falls, climbing to the top of a telephone pole with a harness on and jumping off, things like that. And near that was a small tough shed basically which was reserved for this thing that you could do once you got on your fourth level called solo which I did and you spend four to five days out there you get pots and pans and you go shopping before and basically just get a ton of canned food make your own fires and can't talk to anybody staff will radio you on a walkie-talkie but other than that if anybody sees you on campus they can't talk to you you could only go inside to get your meds or to pee. 
and you couldn't shower. I wore the same clothes for an entire week and um, was silent for an entire week. And they gave me therapeutic tasks that I did. And I wrote so much that um, my notebook fell apart. It fell out of the spine. That's how the program was set up. You come in and um, you're on phase zero, basically. And there's five phases. And you get more privileges as you go up. Because you get this binder with all these therapeutic tasks and your parents get one too. And you'll do 90 minutes of family therapy over FaceTime with your parents and they're working in their binder. And then you do 90 minutes of individual therapy with your therapist doing your own work through your binder. And once you finish those tasks in your binder for that phase, you would then apply to treatment team to get your uh, next phase. The first phase when you first come in is you sleep in a bedroom with a window as one of your walls. So you have zero privacy and we used to call it the fishbowl. You move up to your second phase, which is called team. Then you have to be in eyesight and arm's length of a staff at all times. Then you move up to your second phase and then your third, and then your fourth, and then your fifth. And your fifth is when you're discharged and you have all the privileges that you could want. And then you're basically ready to go home. When it came to me, I progressed pretty quickly through my phases until I got to my third phase and I applied for my fourth phase, which is when you get your phone. And when you get your phone, you and your therapist have to go through absolutely everything. You have to go through uh, texts, photos, phone numbers, and, you know, delete people who were toxic for you. You got to go through all your social media and they put restrictions on your phone and you get it for a certain amount of time a day. And then you have to turn it in at night. So when I was on my fourth phase and I got my phone on my second home pass, it was Thanksgiving. Um, I smoked a cigarette the night before I was supposed to go back to Utah. And when you get back from a home pass or being overnight or being off campus, if your parents came to visit and you were on the appropriate phase, went out and got dinner, when you came back, you had to get um, drug tested and the whole nine yards. And I didn't think the nicotine would show up in a urine analysis, but I guess it does, which is strange. Good to know, though, I guess. And I didn't think much of it at the time. I didn't think that that would be something that I would get in trouble for, even if it did show up. But when the day came for treatment team and I got called in after they got the results of the urine analysis, um, I was put in front of all the staff in my house, three therapists, including mine, the nurses and the whole treatment team for my house. And um, I was asked, did you do anything illegal on your home pass? And I was 18 and it was legal to smoke cigarettes where I lived. And so I said, no. And then they ambushed me and said, well, you did, you lied to us. Uh, nicotine showed up in your urine analysis. So we're going to drop you a level. So they took away my phone. I wasn't allowed to text anybody or let them know anything. They took it away for about two to three weeks, I think until I got my level back. And that's when it really started to get bad. And when I really started to get just gaslighted and publicly shamed on campus by residential staff. And from that point, I mean, I was publicly put through the ringer, told in front of people, told in front of girls that I lived with that I was inauthentic and that 
I was a liar and that I was fake and that I don't know who I am and that I need to figure out who I am, but I already thought I did know who I was. That just fucked up my whole self-perception in a way that I still have to deal with that still impacts me in my relationships. I'm still insecure about how I come off to people if I do come off authentic, if I do really know who I am. Another way that um, girls would get disciplined or publicly shamed was we had these things called interventions. You would get some sort of physical thing that you had to do to try and quote unquote reroute your brain. And certain girls who say they had trouble expressing emotions would have to wear a big emotions wheel around their neck and point to whatever emotion they were feeling at the beginning of every breakfast, lunch, and dinner. There was a girl who had trouble with DBT therapy. So she had three baseball caps. One was her wise mind, which is, you know, the middle. And then one was her emotional and then rational. And she would have to put them on throughout the day, depending on how she was thinking and reacting. And I got one of the worst ones that I'd ever seen. I was, it was before my first home pass when I turned 18. It was before that. And the staff had been pressuring me up until that point that I would fail if I signed myself out. So they decided that they wanted to give me an intervention about giving up control. They did this by giving me a blindfold that I had to wear 24-7, excluding in the shower, for two weeks. Not only was it embarrassing, it was really scary because I couldn't see anything. I had to ask for help for everything that I was doing. I couldn't walk around alone. I couldn't even do my school stuff. People would have to take notes for me. Um, I had to be fed, but I did not make it the full two weeks. I made it six days and I had a breakdown, which I later found out was the reason that I was given that intervention. They did it to manufacture a breakdown while I was at my residential treatment center. So they would know how to deal with a breakdown when I went home, if I had a breakdown at home. So as I said, I was there for nine months. Um, and I do think that I needed to go away just because I was so just sick. My relationship with my parents has changed drastically. It's changed my sister's relationships with my parents and my sister's relationships with each other. But I don't credit that to the program because I never officially graduated the program. I was rejected from my final phase about five times until I just went on a home pass and never came back. And my therapist agreed I was therapeutically ready. It was only the residential staff that continued to block my progress like that. I credit my sustained recovery to my relationship with my parents and the work that they put in, the work that I put in, and the work that my therapist put in. I think everything else, I think the environment, the residential staff, the things that they did, the gaslighting, the manipulation has had lasting residual effects on how I view myself and how I act in relationships and how close I allow myself to get to people and how close I allow them to get to me. In the original episode, I included a submission from a woman who had participated in a wilderness program. It was certainly not ideal, but she did not describe her experience as being particularly traumatic, so I removed it this time around. Her brother's, on the other hand, was a different story, which she tells here. I wanted to follow up my own story by sharing my brother's story, which I think was deeply impacted by this industry more so than my own. I want to start by saying that he actually passed away last year after a skydiving accident. 
I disclosed that because I believe his career in skydiving was correlated to the lack of attention he needed more of as a teen. Early on in high school, downtown NYC public school, Chris skipped school days and was caught smoking weed. I remember knowing that he was distracted by the wrong group of people, but deep down a super smart kid, so I never worried too much. My parents decided his freshman year of high school to send him to a behavioral boarding school called Academy of Swift River in Massachusetts. He'd be away for two years with few visits from family as a way to, quote-unquote, strengthen his coping skills of sorts. He was miserable. He missed home so much and desperately wanted to be with his friends and family. I remember him growing angry, which wasn't like his personality. The anger grew into a few incidents of lashing out, sneaking out, and breaking rules. He graduated the program with, in my opinion, worse behavior and more complicated emotional needs. Because of this, my parents felt he was unable to acclimate back into a normal city school setting, so they sent him to another boarding school called Gold Academy. Gould, G-O-U-L-D. At that point, he was so angry, resentful, and lacking familial support that he got himself kicked out. He was then transferred to the Smith School on the Upper West Side, which was the quote-unquote last stop type school with five to ten kids per grade. He had few friends that were healthy choices. All he had known were kids who were part of the system, in my opinion. After graduating with few actual academic skills or goals, he moved cross-country and took up every extreme activity there was, motorcycles, skydiving, etc., cut to the past few years and having zero positive experiences within these programs and little real-world skill, plus resentment for the family, he struggled to find his place and a sense of belonging. Truly, he grew more troubled by attending these programs than he had been in the first place. He talked about the lack of care frequently from the authorities and the lack of safety he often felt. I believe his need for attention and love grew so strong that his life unfortunately ended too soon trying to seek it out. These programs will take your money without deeply analyzing the needs of the person first, and this causes lifetime irreversible damage. I know for a fact that Academy of Swift River was emotionally abusive for him. We hold Chris close to our hearts now and hope that these stories and your platform can maybe support the outing of some of these schools and can maybe save a life. So I was sent away um, right after I turned 16. I absolutely did need to be removed from uh, the insane situation that I was in. So I'm definitely understanding of why it happened, although um, I don't agree with the methods. I got bullied a lot. High school was really, really rough for me. Uh, I changed schools often. And uh, because of how I look, I did get attention from adults and put in very adult situations when I was young, although I was like painfully shy and very anxious. I was in a psych rock band with adults and two other minor um, girls. We were partying extremely heavily and I was put in really abusive situations with older men who like played in bands with us, um, worked on records and was pretty severely slut shamed by people that put me in the situations or were around for them. Um, it was very traumatizing, which I didn't realize because um, I was craving so much adult approval. Um, and I was drinking very, very heavily and had a daily coke habit. So I was bribed with money to stay at my parents' house. Um, I had since, quote unquote, moved out around 15. 
and was kidnapped in the middle of the night by a man and a woman. Um, I'll never forget that I was watching a rerun of American Idol auditions from season one. And to this day, I definitely shudder when I see any American Idol auditions. The woman was very mean and very rough. Uh, The guy tried to calm me down in the airport by playing a ukulele. Both I thought were very bad approaches. I told everyone at the airport that I was being kidnapped um, while I was coming down off of a coke binge and still drunk. The first place I went was called La Europa. It is a therapeutic boarding school in Utah, um, just outside of Salt Lake. It's in like Murray, Utah. It's advertised as being for like artsy girls with theater and dance and music backgrounds and has these, you know, alleged art programs and whatever. But it was really just a bizarre old kind of McMansion that was built as like a honeymoon hotel bed and breakfast. So they still had like red velvet stuff and jacuzzi tubs. And it was just a very, very strange place. It was run exclusively by Mormons, so while it wasn't, like, quote-unquote religious in programming, it was extremely um, conservative, and they discussed Mormon ideals and traditions and would tell us, like, caffeine was a drug and all these things. I was labeled as a flight risk for most of my time there. I wasn't allowed to wear shoes, even in public spaces. I had to be barefoot or in socks, Um, like we went roller skating and I was not (laughs) I was just walking around and it was frequently strip searched um we were woken up at 5 a.m for outdoor gym classes and like chores beforehand I had a male Mormon therapist um that almost put me off of therapy for life it was very punitive and like how could you do this to your family and your parents not ever um focusing on maybe that I was in pain. I grew up privileged. Obviously, uh, these programs are wildly inaccessible otherwise, and the behaviors I was doing would um, have landed me in jail, not boarding school if I was not white and upper middle class. Um, But girls would joke that I was the only person whose parents didn't go to an Ivy, and I was essentially a high school dropout at that point and had been to two high schools already, this being my third, and then I would go to um, another when I got back. They used a lot of intimidation and shaming tactics uh, and physical restraint, mostly horror stories about girls who turned 18 and signed themselves out of the school and their lives went to shit or they died. Um, There are a lot of stories about abuse of queer and trans kids. Um, There was a lot of blatant, blatant homophobia while I was there. After about a month or so, I wasn't responding to the program, um, and they felt like I was, like, lying my way through it, which I definitely was. Um, I was kidnapped, again, out of my bed um, by one of the same transports plus another woman and taken to a wilderness program where I lived outside um, with no tent for six weeks, hiked about 15 miles a day. This program was an extreme measure that I will say did somewhat work. I still have very like torn feelings about it. It was obviously traumatizing and pretty horrifying at times, but it did pull me out of my head in a way that I don't know how I would have done. I was just in such a bad situation that it was 
a shock to be outside for that long. And, um, you know, maybe it did something. I was set to go back to the boarding school after, but my parents agreed to a regular rehab center in Minnesota, where I'm from, uh, Hazelden. They were receptive when I told them what was happening at the boarding school and how abusive it was. I think they did their best with what they had. And I think at first they were brainwashed into the ethos of the therapeutic boarding school um, in a way that like many parents have been. I think that the kidnapping aspect is the hardest to wrap my head around to this day and probably where a lot of residual PTSD comes from. I've woken up in like cold sweats and panic attacks. Um, I'm very like prone to nightmares and have woken up screaming before, which has scared people. I've blocked out uh, a lot of like the day-to-day experiences at the boarding school and the wilderness program, to be honest. For a long time, it gave me a distrust of therapists and psychiatrists. I'm now in healthy therapy for the first time as an adult at nearly 30. I was 14 when I was shipped off. I'm from Athens, Georgia. I had dyslexia and was in Georgia public school, and it started to get depressing as I got into high school. I was already on a bad track, smoking all my pops weed and skipping school, popping Xanax bars and just being crazy. At the time I got sent off, shit came to a head. And at 14, 115 pounds, I was fighting my pop a lot. One time we were fighting and my big brother called the cops. I had been getting prescribed ADD pills, which helped make me super pissed. So that was a part of my vileness. But the cops came, and I got 5150, but I was a minor, so they put me in a mental hospital for a week, then sent me to wilderness camp. The camp was three months long in the North Georgia mountains. I learned wilderness skills, and the program was about making fire without a match or a lighter. Then I went to a boarding school in Asheville for six months, and a school in Buffalo, New York, especially for dyslexia. Looking back, I loved all of it, except for being in a mostly male environment for all of my teens. It took me a second to get comfortable around attractive women, but that's pretty normal. I think it all depends on the programs, people, and situations. Some people that I was in the wilderness with were sent there by their parents for being gay or maybe trans and stuff like that. But for me, I needed it, probably, and I look back on it really fondly. I was in 10th grade when I was sent to Outward Bound. Um, I had actually already known about the program because... I I have three older brothers, two stepbrothers, one brother, um, who had all gone to programs like that, Outward Bound, Knowles, um, <clears throat> boarding schools, like legitimately multiple dif- different high schools. I was kind of like, you know, like the princess of the family. Um, but I did cause some trouble. The school in particular that I went to was actually kind of known for, I mean, you know, York was like, those that could not get into Dalton or Dwight um, went to York and we were kind of the rejects of the private school system, which sounds so ridiculous. So I dated a senior my freshman year of high school. Um, We were doing coke. We were going out. Um, He was, you know, he at the time was making fake IDs. So I was making fake IDs, selling them. Um, we were going to the clubs. He was selling a lot of drugs. I was in summer school. Like I failed my entire freshman year. I was on Ambien, Adderall, Prozac, Klonopin. I mean, some real 
heavy stuff when I didn't even really fully understand what it was that I was having issues with. It was just like, it was in a really emotional time. My 10th grade year, he had already been out of school and I was just like causing trouble, staying out past curfew, really indulging in like the city's, the city's level of energy. My parents, basically they were like, you're, you're going to this thing to outward bound program. It's a two week program, which is shorter than the lengths that my brother, my brothers did. So I went to, um, like the North Cascades outside of Seattle. Um, mind you, I had literally never been out of New York before. So it was a two week program in which we were going to learn the character building skills that are camping and hiking and kayaking and as a group and doing it in like a really eco friendly, mindful way. Um, Obviously, I did not have that terminology at the time. I thought it was complete bullshit. And however, um, it was super, super magical. Um, it was actually a lot of hard work. And I remember, you know, we were doing like, wake up at 4am, hike for 12 miles, you know, all of the camp with us. And it was like a group of 13 kids. Um, and then we would spend the evenings like unpacking camp, setting up camp, cooking, obviously, um, cleaning. And like, there was definitely some group time where we were discussing and counseling our personal issues out. I mean, I do remember getting awfully close with my group and like bonding with them, um, relating to them a lot, obviously. So it was like after two weeks of kind of learning how to you know, learning the skills, then they're like, we're going to set you up for a night by yourself, like somewhere literally on your own island um, with a gallon of water and a journal and have fun. I remember obviously it being emotional, like frustrating, but I left and really, really valued it, really loved it. I, I remember coming back and I was like, why? I was all on this like natural camping grind. I was like, why do we even have, you know, like faucets and sinks? Do I think that it was the answer for my behavioral issues? No, but it was, you know, an, an attempt. At least in my experience, I do feel a sense of like, you know, my personal experience was my family being heavily involved in therapy and, you know, just... I, you know, lots of babysitters and lots of like avoidant tactics, I think on their part. Um, and I almost feel like that encouraged a lot of our behavior, meaning my elder brothers and I, um, to the point where I feel like, yeah, we were kind of like craving attention. And the more that we would act out on that, the more that we were kind of like sent away or sent to someone to talk to some professional when in reality, now looking back on it, you know, I have some resentment towards that. I feel like what we really needed was to kind of be held closer. I actually went away at 18. So I agreed to going. I wasn't sent away against my own will, which is probably pretty surprising for you to hear. I was in such a bad place. I was a total mess with my life and the choices I was making, who I was spending my time with. I also missed the boat on college. 
I was partying way too much and hanging with the wrong people, was in a toxic, extremely codependent relationship. I had lost my job due to all this, and I felt like a failure because I wasn't in school. I felt backed into a corner. I hated myself. I needed a break from the stuff I was using to numb my problems and pain with. Who was I really? I didn't know. I needed to face myself and furthermore develop confidence and passion and love for life. I was going down a deep, dark hole and my family was sick of me. I was sick of me. I needed to get away, get sober, work on myself. I have always been keen on doing the work. I am still, to this day, all about self-improvement and evolution and healing and growth. I didn't think too much about it. I just kind of agreed and went for it without looking back. My mom dropped me off at the airport and I left everything with her, my cell phone included. I literally had only the clothes on my back and a pen and paper. I would write myself a letter for when I got out. I went away to a place in Costa Rica for young adults that combined therapy with wilderness living. I knew it was going to be rustic, but I really didn't know what I was in store for. Let me just say, it was really fucking rustic. Dirt, bugs, you name it, and there was zero personal space. We slept in cots in rooms of five with one staff member in a locked room. You were up all night with the people getting up to pee. In the big picture, that's not the end of the world, but I really missed my own room in bed. We would rise at 6 a.m. and go to the farm, where we grew all kinds of vegetables and plants. We built beds and used the food we grew for ourselves and also sold some to the farmer's market, which you got to go to if you were far enough along in the program. We had a big outdoor kitchen. We would cook in under strict guidance and very strict portion and knife control. The garden was physical labor, which was hard as fuck, but I think it gave you an outlet and allowed you to move and sweat and take everything out on the solid rock that you were breaking up with iron tools. There are, actually, I came to learn, many, many metaphors between humans and plants, and so there were lessons there. I think it was really about giving us something to do all day long. We had our own little hut in a row that had a chair, and you could borrow books from a small library and hang in your hut and read or write. I actually read 15 books in my three months there, which I didn't think my ADD attention span was even capable of. I remember reading Herman Hesse's Siddhartha and many other tales that sparked my still-beloved interest in Eastern philosophy and mythology. I had several notebooks I would write in, daily journal prompts and one I would just write down quotes in that I would read in these books. I wanted to remember them. I think when you have no control, you try to control what you can even your memory. We had chores we had to do every day, like watering the plants, and we'd check them off in this little book. We would be reviewed every day based on this and other things. Anytime you wanted to go somewhere, like the kitchen, or to refill your Nalgene, or to pee, you had to ask. You had to yell and receive permission. Then you would be followed and observed. I showered every day, no matter what. It was like the only fucking alone time you had, and it was like my way of not giving up on myself. It was something I did every day to take care of me. OG self-care. The water was ice cold. This was before ice showers were cool. It wasn't glamorous. I didn't shave for three months. I actually used native plants that make shampoo for body product. Didn't even look in a mirror the whole time. I remember once we were be being transported by car and I caught myself in the rearview mirror. It was so foreign and jolting to see myself. 
I think I sometimes purposefully avoid looking in the mirror now, and when I do, I spend far too long picking myself apart. You had to do your own laundry, and I'm talking with a washboard and a big-ass bucket of soap and water, so literally nothing you wore was ever really clean. The food was super healthy and pretty fresh. Every morning you were required to eat. Half a papaya from the trees, sometimes you got apple or banana, plus yogurt, honey, cooked oats, a little bit of granola on a very special occasion. I remember first thinking what an awful combination, but I grew to love it. I learned how to cook a lot of things there, and I'm actually very grateful for that. People took turns cooking in the kitchen, which I hated because if you didn't like someone's food, you still had to eat it. And if you had leftovers, you had to eat it the next meal, or the next, or the next, so you couldn't get away from it. They sometimes took us to little excursions in small groups if you could be trusted, which was neat, but you also felt so lame and like a prisoner. I felt embarrassed. You got to see your therapist twice a week, which was exciting, and I looked forward to it because it was the only way I knew if I was advancing. I was ready to go home at literally any moment, but it always seemed like there was more to work on. I told my therapist so much. About my parents' divorce and drug addictions and the toxic relationships I had been in. I told her about my own alcohol and drug abuse and my depression and my anger. I was super open, which I thought was the best way to get through fast if I laid my cards on the table and was honest. But in retrospect, maybe it made it so I had to stay longer. Perhaps I could have kept my mouth shut, but like I said, I tried to make the most of it all. I sometimes left therapy really frustrated. Who was this therapist to be the boss of me? I wanted to go home, but when we would write my mom, she didn't think I was ready yet. Eventually, I was allowed to make phone calls. I could have ran away, but I didn't have anywhere to run to. I didn't have a place to go or a family that seemed like they were on my team, and I was thousands of miles away from home, and what would I even do if I could have figured out a way to get back? I felt trapped, but the mature thing to do would be to suck it up and stay on track and count down the days and just get through it. Aside from the therapists and higher-ups, the program was entirely run by hippies, like people that camped during their weeks off. They were all actually pretty cool individuals. They were into outdoor life and things I've come to value, like nature, surfing, yoga, and playing guitar. One girl had a tattoo of a poem that I've come to cherish my whole life long. She wrote it for me on a piece of paper. I must still have it somewhere. Another had a tattoo that said manifest. I remember asking her what that meant. This was before I'd ever heard of manifestation. One of the better things that happened there for me was that I eventually got to do a vision quest because I was trusted to where I went out alone and camped for four days and heat and sun and chilly nights with nothing but water, a journal, a tent, pad, sleeping bag, and a copy of Marianne Williamson's book. Like, finally, alone. I could breathe. I learned so much from that experience and performed sacred rituals on my own that stemmed from the likes of Joseph Campbell. Those three days of fasting and watching wildlife hold many sacred moments that I like to keep to myself. Let's talk about parents. They let you write letters and you could share them if you wanted. I've never had a great relationship with my dad, and I certainly didn't after high school. I wrote him like a 13-page letter about all the shit he put our family through, and I got no response. I was stunned. But at least I processed how I felt about him. And I guess I realized then that when someone gives you no response, there, in itself, is the response. It's unfortunate, but he's just not capable. I confronted him about it when I got home. I put so much time into that thing, 
and he really didn't seem to care. My mom came to visit actually for a parents weekend type thing, which went well. I laid my head in her lap and she played with my hair. I hadn't let her that close to me since, I don't know, I was a little girl. It was special. I was different. I knew I had changed. Just the fact that I could let someone near me like that. My mom had kicked me out of the house, attacked me, I'm not exaggerating, months prior to this. I was living in my car. So it's safe to say we had come a long way. When she left Costa Rica, I thought she would take me with her. I thought she would let me leave with her, but I was wrong. I came to understand and forgive her for this without making a scene. But I was sad to be left there. Really sad. In addition to being able to write people, your parents were able to write you. And there came a time for each student to hear the letter from their parents. Student, by the way, is in quote-unquote. I forget what they called these letters. It started with an I. Anyway, they had a name for them. You had to read it out loud to the entire group of staff and fellow students. So every one of your peers knew what you were like in your parents' eyes. The letters were beyond intense. You saw people completely break down, feeling tremendous shame. Your heart broke for each person as they weeped and had to claim words that were hurtful and reminiscent of past behaviors. In my opinion, this was wrong. And it wasn't a healthy way to create dialogue between a participant and their parent about what the parent thought of them and their behavior. I was mad at my mom for what she said. Let's talk about damage. I always try to see the light and make the light when I don't see it, but on the negative side of things, although there are lessons to be learned in everything, some of the things I learned in my time there, I needed to and probably still am needing to unlearn. With the food, there were three portion sizes and you had to pick, small, medium, or large. And you could go up or down, but that's what you got and you had to eat it all. I was a small, but then I remember eventually wanting more. And I think that sometimes when you're in a situation where you can't have another serving, you can become overwhelmed with desire. I do believe at this point that my eating disorder worsened. I had struggled with an eating disorder and ADD medication for a few years and was used to starving myself and denying food, but this took everything in the other direction and developed a binging side. So then I became caught in a cycle of binge and restrict as opposed to just restrict. My relationship with food is entirely fucked up, still to this day. I have been stick thin and also very heavy, and I oscillate, but I am never, ever happy or love how my body looks. I torture myself over food. I have done so much to work on my relationship with food, binging and purging and restricting, but it's a work in progress, and I know the place where this started was in Costa Rica. It doesn't feel healed. Which brings me to my next point. The other main thing I have to say is that I live in this headspace that I seem to be unable to break out of, which is that I have problems. When you spend so much time picking apart your issues and claiming them, you become them. They become a part of your identity. This idea that I'm not whole, that there's something which needs to be fixed, that I'm not good enough, that I'm codependent, an addict, a depressed person, a bad person, all of the things which I fight and I fight, but it's still there whispering in my ear every damn day. Overall, this experience solidified that I was fucked up, that I had issues, that I wasn't normal, that I needed all the help I could get, that I needed help in life, period. And that still sticks with me. I'm always looking at myself and wondering what I could fix. 
because there's no way it's possible that I'm fine or acceptable or worthy or lovable just the way I am. The intense amount of therapy that you get in these places makes you believe you have all these issues which you probably never even had. I ripped myself apart and the voice of this hypercritical superego came out and I don't think I've ever gotten it to really go away. I feel like I am my own worst enemy and I am so incessantly hard on myself because of this place I went. Sure, I partied, but was I worse than my other friends? No. They all grew up at some point. Maybe I was just the first to realize that we ought to grow up and I thought this was the solution. So I came to think I was inherently bad and had a lot to be ashamed for. I still feel that way. After a total of three months, Easter was coming up, so that was kind of my moment to be like, all right, mom, I'm coming home for Easter. I wanted to have all this accountability and routine and maximize myself and do the therapy and the yoga and go back to school when I got home, almost putting too much on my plate. And I had all these rules. I wouldn't see this person and I wouldn't do this stuff. My mom really did not trust me when I came back, which I think was really lame. I had just worked my ass off. She was scared. My mom has always been so overcome by fear. It's actually sad. She has a lot of flaws, you know? Our parents have a lot of flaws. I try to work on myself and mind my own and love people however I can and also have boundaries. We're all works in progress. I think I have too many walls up in my adult life to lay my head in her lap and let her play with my hair ever again. I think it's a shame and a scam that parents can hire a consultant who makes a commission to pick a school and ship them off against their own free will without ever really having to help heal their kid or get to know their kid and their problems. And to be honest, I think kids are a product of their parents and how they were raised. So maybe after all, it's the parents that need the reform, you know? I was sent away when I was 12 years old, um, and I was at Sea-Doo, uh Middle School is where I was originally sent. It was a one-and-a-half-year program that I managed to be in for three years. These are definitely for-profit treatment centers with very high price tags. What I found out later when I met up with a staff member that I was kind of close to um, despite the, the really aggressive, intense, hostile nature of some of these relationships with staff members, um, there was a sort of softness that developed at times. And there was, I mean, I think some of that plays like has to do with some of the Stockholm syndrome qualities of being in a treatment center like this, that I think a lot of people had, you'd see a lot of kids, um, basically just be super gung ho about, the program and all that stuff, um, even though the program kind of sucked. He told me that the staff on the teams were financially incentivized for the success of the teams. So what that meant is we had levels within the teams. Um, so like when you came in, you're at the lowest level. And then as you go through the program, you move up until you're at the highest level and you graduate at the highest level. So these are like progress markers, right? The staff are incentivized, like they get a kickback when, you know, their team is doing well, when people move up to new levels and all this stuff. They're also incentivized to keep people in the program. So the more retention they have of students, uh, the more sort of, I guess it's like a commission that they would get. 
Um, so that said, when I started talking to the therapist at the school about going home and the therapist was like, and the therapists operated separately, right? There was like, they were not part of the school workings. They were just this separate entity and we would go see them for our, you know, weekly like mental health stuff outside of our group therapy and our, our work in the program. My therapist was talking to my parents about taking me home. The staff members found out about it because my parents talked to the resource coordinator about it. And she's the liaison between my parents and the school. So as soon as she found out, the team goes in effect to, you know, try to keep me in the school. This counselor that I had met up with told me, hey, listen, we ended up setting traps for you so that you would show your parents that you really needed to be here. And, uh, and it worked after about a year, a little bit less than a year in the middle school, instead of going home, like I thought I would, and maybe it was like nine months, I was transferred to the high school program, um, for like another two years. And I was furious. I like started smoking at the high school. Um, I started breaking into offices because I was bored, like just all kinds of things, anything any other kid wanted to do who like had more experience than me. Cause again, remember like I was like a 13, 13 year old and like, I'm around a bunch of like drug addicted 15 year olds, 16 year olds, 17 year olds. Um, and I was just like, yeah, let's go. So I was sent there essentially because I didn't get along with my parents. I was a really depressed, sad kid. The one time that I had been drunk, I was 12 years old. I'd been drunk one time and I wrote this lengthy thing in my journal about how happy I was and how great everything was. And then it spiraled into, I just want to die. I'm so depressed. And my parents read that journal entry and they were like, oh, hell no, our daughter's going to kill herself. I just felt unheard and unseen all the time. And I would throw these huge tantrums because uh, they were asking me things that felt unreasonable. And like, I just felt unseen. Like we would have these huge blowouts over whether I'd brushed my hair, right? How trivial is that? But stuff like that would end up to me being put in a psych ward because I would just throw a tantrum so freaking huge. Um, and they would be so scared and overwhelmed and not know what to do with it. Um, so I went to see you voluntarily. Um, it was pretty shocking when I showed up and they essentially were like, okay, pull down your underwear and cough and like strip searched me for things. And I was like, where am I? What's going on? Uh, we were not allowed to talk to other people who came at the same time until like a few months in. Uh, there were a lot of restrictions on who we could and could not talk to and when. Um, and a lot of just control in that regard. Basically, our day would start. We'd wake up at 5.30, um, get ready real quickly, go to breakfast. After breakfast, we'd clean the dining room. And then we would break into different, I think it was in our teams, and we would go clean the different buildings. After we would clean the buildings, we would go to school. Um, school was kind of a joke. We would do maybe, um, I think it was probably about three hours of classes a day. And then we would go to lunch. Um, after lunch, again, we would clean the dining room. 
And then Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, we would break into groups or raps in the high school. And this is where we would do our group therapy. And this is where things got a little intense. This is where you're supposed to talk about your problems, what's going on with you, or talk about your problems that you're having with another student. In order to confront somebody, you had to be three seats away, which meant that if you wanted to confront somebody, you had to walk across the room and ask somebody to trade seats with you. So you'd start seeing people walking across the room and you're just like, oh God, what's about to happen? And then you'd start hearing somebody be like, you did this to me the other day, blah, 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 blah. And you never tuck in your shirt. (laughs) And then the whole room discussion turns toward that person and it spirals out. Um, I often heard these discussions migrate into territory of like, you know, like, like we're not, we weren't going to end with, um, you didn't tuck in your shirt, right? It's like, what's wrong with you? Like what, what's your core issue? And then they would basically draw on your core disclosures or like things disclosures or things that your deepest darkest secrets that would come out in other parts of the program like these workshops that we would do and they would use those as points to get you to just bust open and cry and like basically tear you down so they could build you back up i heard i heard you know like little like tuck in your shirt sort of confrontations turn into why can't you keep your legs closed? You're always on your back by like a staff member toward a girl who's talking about being raped. You know what I mean? Like just real nasty stuff. They'd encourage you and praise you for things like what they called. I think this is what was called doing work when you would just put your head down between your knees and start screaming at the floor and everyone would egg you on and just be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And tell your mom this and blah, 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 blah. How'd you feel when blah, 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 blah. Um, they did weird stuff. Like when we would do workshops, they would deprive us of eating and sleeping overnight to get an emotional pour out, but it would be, um, anywhere from, I don't know, like 18 hours to like, four days, five days of this with specific activities, loud, loud music to anchor, uh, these emotional outpourings. Like there are certain songs when I hear them right now, I just have emotional triggers because I've heard that song repeated so many times while I was screaming. But the hard part is they'd always say, you guys are free to leave. There's no locked doors and no gate. We were absolutely not free to leave. And, um, there were intimidation tactics like, Hey, everyone that runs away down the backside dies. Um, so you won't make it if you run away, you're probably going to die. I would definitely say it affected my behavior for the worst. Um, I came into CDU a pretty virginal child that had like drank once and thought it was really cool and exciting, but like, it wasn't, you know, something I needed. Um, I left C to a drug addict and, um, overdosed multiple times, been hospitalized from alcohol poisoning, um, and have had to get sober since the big effect that it's had is on my relationship with my parents. They can't apologize enough and I can't hear the apology ever. Um, they say that they did what they could with what they had, which is absolutely 
what program fed them. Um, the resource coordinators and the programs for parents definitely fed them um, rationale um, to justify what they were doing and to keep us there. Um, and they cite those back to me sometimes. And I'm like, well, you guys are still brainwashed. Like, you know, I understand that you didn't know what to do with me, but also like you fucked up so bad. Um, so it's just been hard to work through that resentment. I went to boarding school my junior year of high school. Um, I wasn't sent there. I actually begged to go because it was a hockey school. And I wanted to play college hockey. And this is the best hockey school in the world. There's actually three, Culford Military Academy um, in Indiana, Notre Dame Prep in Saskatchewan, Canada, and then Shattuck St. Mary's in uh, Fairbow, Minnesota, which is where I went. And that's the best of the three of them. And it's turned out like a bajillion NHL players. <sighs> when I was there, at least there were 200 guys and 100 girls. So that off the bat was uh not not good <laughs> um and the first night we were there um the dorm parent mr lynn seibel um invited like the new kids to the basement and uh, it was this dark candle lit thing and he was telling ghost stories about like the dorm building and the surrounding area and the woods very freaky, uh, but kind of made sense later on that he would kind of perpetuate that. Uh, he was like our dorm parent. He was the <clears throat> the dorm parent that everyone loved. Like the he was the drama teacher at the school. He was an actor actually. He was in a couple movies. He was in Mighty Ducks three. They filmed that at our school, and um, he was the head dorm parent of the whole dorm, the boys' dorm, and everybody loved him because you know if he felt homesick, whatever. You go down, hang, have dinner with his family. Um, and he was the drama teacher as well, so he was uh, <clears throat> super good at like getting kids out of their comfort zone, making us do silly stuff in class. And we were all, you know, hard headed, cocky high school kids. And there were stories about stuff that he did, um, like with kids when they were down at his apartment sometimes. Uh, there were stories about him used to do gay porn um <clears throat> and let me just make it straight we loved this guy because he would always go to bat for us if we got in trouble with the dean of students or the hockey coaches or the principal or whatever and he always had our back and he was like the nicest guy which makes sense that the predator was not the you know outwardly evil guy he was the one that was that we trusted most this boarding school was like lord of the flies you know there was the kids totally run it ran it i mean we it was just so much drinking and drugs all the time it was insane for a high school dorm um and the seniors would always organize crazy things like whenever there was a new dorm parent we'd have uh naked dance parties where all the like juniors all the upperclassmen would get naked and like chant and dance outside of uh the new dorm parents apartment and just freak the shit out of them and all those dorm rooms also the doors opened in so people would uh lean a full garbage can of water against the door and then you know ding dong ditch them or whatever and flood their apartment 
and then have a naked dance party outside their room. And just like a lot of these people ended up leaving after a month or two because they just couldn't handle it. I mean, it was just Lord of the Flies, really. It was like we people would when we got in trouble, they'd put us on lockdown, <clears throat> which meant that we. Um, they like locked the whole floor so you couldn't really leave the dorm or even go to the other side of the dorm or downstairs if you had friends or whatever. And when they did that, kids would lose it and like start throwing furniture out the windows, uh, dipping tennis balls in cologne and lighting them on fire and rolling them down the, down the hall into the dorm parents' apartments. Yeah, and whenever we had like the naked dance parties or whatever, Mr. Seibel was always there like in the back with his arms crossed smiling and I thought that was a bit odd uh, <clears throat> and then this guy that lived down the hall from me he was just like total alcoholic and he uh, one time said that he was going to try and uh, blackmail Mr. Seibel so he went so the story goes that he went down there wasted started talking to Mr. Seibel somehow became a little bit physical then like leaned in to kiss Mr. Seibel and Mr. Seibel uh, accepted and then my friend said listen here motherfucker we're, you're going to let me do whatever I want to do me and my friends for the next year and a half we're here <laughs> and he just sold weed out of his dorm room the rest of the time and uh, Mr. Seibel protected him because because of that and so like if I would say less than 10 years ago I'm 36, so like less than 10 years ago, you got a letter uh, that said <clears throat> somebody that was in the faculty while I was there had, is under investigation by the police for conduct at the school, blah, blah, blah. And we all knew that it was Mr. Seibel they were talking about. Um, there were also other stories of him uh, doing this thing called AP drama, where he would like take the seniors <coughs> into, the, into a room and, like, measure their dicks and teach them, like, jelking and stretching exercises to get their dicks bigger, and then they would periodically, like, remeasure their dicks. Um, so we, yeah, he, he said that he was going to do it the year I was there, but then uh, last minute he decided not to. I was probably going to go with, like, a fucking pen camera or something. I was, like, kind of kind of trying to be an investigative journalist at this school, honestly. Um, and so, anyways, you know, we got this letter that says someone was under investigation. We were there, we knew it was Mr. Seibel, and sure enough, Mr. Seibel gets arrested um, on child porn charges soon thereafter. And not sure if he's still in jail right now, but uh, it's been amazing to hear how many of these, like, crazy, cocky, lady-slang fucking kids uh, actually had... Um, potentially sexual encounters with Mr. Seibel that led to him getting in trouble. Once again, my degenerate angels, my name is Allie Weiss, and this has been Tales of Taboo. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you need a refund for the amount of tissues that you used listening to these stories, send me a Venmo request. Happy to reimburse, and depending on how many of you actually take me up on that offer. Friendly reminder that merch is available on my website. We have adorable, very comfortable sweatshirts, and equally as adorable, though slightly less comfortable, G-string thongs. Those are available at AllieWeissWorld.com slash merch. 
buying one or both is the easiest way to support this show. I don't take on any corny ass sponsors that I think you guys aren't going to like. It's entirely self-produced. If you like what you hear and you want me to keep the stories coming, buying one of those items truly means the world to me, as does you taking 30 seconds to leave a rating and a review on iTunes and Spotify. I know that every podcaster asks you to do that, but in my case, as a smaller show, and again, self-produced, it's the best way for me to expand my network and find a more diverse range of stories. Anyway, I love you all. Thank you for listening. And I am excited to see and hear from you next week. Thank you.